Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3, verse 27 through 31 this morning. A Friday night, I had the opportunity to go with my family to watch the, what I'm told is the oldest rivalry in, his, in high school sports in the state of Illinois, Rock Island versus Moline, at the famous uh, Wharton Fieldhouse. And I, again, was told, and I haven't verified this, but was ranked top 10 uh, field houses, auditoriums, uh, stadiums, to arenas to, to watch a basketball game in. And I would echo that. It was incredible. It felt like you were stepping back into 1903, which is when it was built. But that was awesome. And, and Kelly and I, we, we grew up in Lancaster with, uh, with a community center that was built when my grandmother was in elementary school and, and had the old wood floors. It was, it, it was reminiscent of that. It kind of took me back. Uh, and so that was an amazing experience, a great game. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we were there to, to root on our friends who coach uh, Rock Island, and they, they lost. So that was a little bit of a damper uh, on the night, but what a great game. And in that game, uh, two athletes made monumentous uh, achievements. One of them broke the Moline's all-time scoring record. Pretty incredible. Uh, that young man is going to Iowa uh, to play basketball next year. Broke the all-time Moline scoring record. Uh, we had a moment in the, in the game where we just stopped and everyone applauded for him. Uh, and then after the game, it was acknowledged and recognized that another young man had crossed over the 1,000-point uh, threshold. He had, he had scored 1,000 points in his varsity career. Uh, and so he was given a trophy and was out there center stage and, you know, of course, held it up and, 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 you know, was facing one direction. And, of course, they say, oh, well, face the other direction so everyone can see you and, and bask in this moment. And, you know, it was right and good to recognize these two young athletes because they put in the hard work. They're very talented. That was a great achievement for us to recognize them. And in a sense, it was right for them to boast in that moment. Now, when I talk about boasting, I'm not talking about bragging. It would be wrong for him to walk in today with his trophy and be like, hey, see, I'm the guy that got this. But in that moment, it was right for him to enjoy the glory of his achievement. Because it was not just about what he had done. It's only an achievement because so many others have tried and failed, right? And others have set that record that he then beat. It's a, it's a way of honoring. That's why we give awards in the army. It, it, it's not, you know, you ever wonder why, well, if you were just modest, if you were humble in the army, you wouldn't wear your ribbons. But the reality is that you don't wear your ribbons, the ribbons wear you. You, you, you display something that is bigger than yourself. You know, we, we honor people uh, in the business world for top salesmen and for uh, best innovator and, and, and things like this. It's right, it's good for us to recognize hard work, talent, skill, dedication, commitment. It's right for in those moments for those people who have achieved that to boast in the moment, to recognize, yes, I did something that was, what was excellent, and we ought to pursue excellence it's right to boast within moderation of your achievements. It's right for us to recognize achievements. When it comes to salvation, Paul makes it clear 
that you have nothing to boast in. When it comes to salvation, Paul says there is absolutely nothing that you can point to to hold up and say, see, I did this. I I can stand and I can boast because I, and then fill in the blank. There's nothing. It's blank. (laughs) The blank is blank. I did nothing to be saved, to be made right with God. And so Paul says boasting is excluded. Let's read this passage here this morning. I think we're going to have some fun. It's going to be a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Greek. We're going to set some people free, Lord willing, from legalism and moralism. It's going to be a good day. Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? Verse 27. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to send Jesus to die for us to take our place. to make us righteous. Not because of what we have done, but because who you are and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And I pray, Lord, that you would liberate people today from the bonds of moralism and legalism and works-based righteousness and help us to rejoice that we are saved by faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul asks, what then becomes of our boasting? Literally, where is boasting? That's, the word, that, that's what he says. Where is boasting? He challenges. He challenges the reader. I love how Paul does this. And recently I was going back and reading through Romans in big, big chunks, you know, four chapters at a time. And it, was, it reminded me of the pillars. And we took these down. We took these down at Christmas, but put them back up to remind us of the pillars. And there's, there's this clear movement through Romans. And first he establishes that we are depraved, sinful, wicked, lost people. And he, and he just completely cuts us down to, our, to the ground. And then he goes, you are saved by faith. You are saved by grace through faith. You've not done anything to earn this. God is the one that does all the work in your salvation. And this, this is where I want to be, <laughs> right? It was hard being over here, and the, the video guys are loving this right now. It's, it's hard being here in the first three chapters, but it's wonderful being here in chapters four and five. And as we move from here, we're going to get back here, and there's some toes are going to be stepped on again just a little bit when we get into sanctification because there's a call to holy living and then we're going to get into sovereignty of God and, and like the, the hands of a potter forming vessels for his use and then fellowship and how we ought to live with each other. But here we are in justification. This, this, is, the, this is the fun stuff. This is you are saved by faith alone. You are justified. 
by faith. So Paul asks us, in what do you place your confidence? Right? You, you've been taken down. You've been stripped down. None is righteous. No, not one. In what do you place your confidence when you stand before the holy God that we just sang about? What do you think is, is your hope that you're going to enter into his kingdom? Where is your boast? Where is your hope? All are under sin. All are under sin. By works of the law, no one is justified. By observing the law, by doing everything right within your power, no one is justified. No one is righteous. No one is made right before God by doing the right things. But Paul says in 3.21, But now the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. Apart from human effort, God's righteousness has been revealed. We went over that a couple of weeks ago. God has achieved, through the person of Jesus Christ, what we could never achieve. Righteousness. You and I could never achieve our own righteousness. God achieves it through the person, the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And His righteousness is given to us as a gift of grace. He says in verse 326, so that we might be, so that he might be just, the righteous judge, not sweeping sin under the rug. He can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justifiers to be made righteous. He can declare you legally righteous. We'll talk more about that today, but he can he can both deal with sin without punishing the sinner. Because Jesus took your place on the cross. That is our argument. That is what we're about. That's what Christians believe. Jesus died in your place so that you, by faith in Jesus, could be made righteous before God. What then becomes of our boasting, Paul asks? It is excluded, he, he concludes, the righteousness of God, which is manifested in Jesus, excludes any reason we have to boast in our salvation. There is no reason for you and I to take any pride whatsoever in what we have done in our lives to be saved. None. None. No decisions, no walking the aisle, no praying the prayers, no commitment to Sunday school. None. None. Can I say it in another language? I don't know another language. Nada. I was singing German, and I was like, I don't know the word for German. Uh, for nine. Nine. Or Klein. Nine is no, Klein is zero, or none. Klein. No, what is it? Small. Okay, all right. <laughs> Maybe it's kind. I don't know. I lived in Germany for two and a half years. I took German for four years in school. This is Latin and English and Greek today. All right? That's what I've prepared for. It's excluded. It, it, verse 27 continues. He, he asks, by what kind of law? Why is it excluded? 
Why is it excluded? By what kind of law? A law of works? No, but by the law of faith. We've already, we've already established that works do not save anyone, ever, period, but by the law of faith. So he's like, is there a means by which we can attain righteousness with God? No. I've already made that clear. One through three, none is righteous. And so our boasting is excluded because a right relationship with God is dependent upon faith, not human works. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus. If you want a a doctrinal term to write down to make you feel smarter, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal means punishing, punishment, Substitutionary, meaning in your place. Atonement, meaning taking away your sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's not a popular word these days, or term these days, but we believe it because the Bible teaches it. It's not because of what you have done, because, but because of what Jesus has done. So you have nothing to boast in. The law of faith excludes our boasting because faith is simply empty-handed receiving what God gives by grace. See, you might think, well, I have something because I, at least I went and got it, right? Like, I, I went to the store and I, and, I, and I grabbed it off the shelf. At least I did that. No, you did not. You were a poor beggar on the street, on your knees, and the Lord places within your hands His grace. That's, that's the picture uh, that Paul paints of us in our sinful, broken estate. He says, for the for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works, in verse 28. So he says, we hold. That implies that this is a shared conviction of all believers. This is what we call a closed-handed doctrine. There are open-handed doctrines, like you don't, you don't dance. Okay, there may be times and seasons which it's not right to dance, but that's an open-handed thing. We're okay to disagree on this. Right? There's limits to, to alcohol consumption, cigarettes, and things like this. Right? It's open hand. We can, we can have fellowship and disagree. But this, that we are saved by faith alone, is a closed-handed doctrine. If you, if you disagree with this, you part ways from faithful Christians everywhere. You understand? There's a fundamental problem. There's a, there, there's, there's a divide between us if you disagree that we're saved by, by faith alone. That's what Paul says. Again, we, we come to that important doctrinal term, justification. I want you to recall from last week that justification is a legal declaration. There's a, there's a court, and God is the judge, and God is the one that makes the final judgment. And there's a legal declaration. The gavel comes down, and the, the declaration is made. It is a declaration of righteousness. We hold that one is justified, legally declared righteous by the judge. It's final. It's binding. Though you are a sinner, God declares you righteous by faith. If you're new with this this morning, now do you understand why we worship this holy God? We don't stand in fear of Him. We fear Him. We reverence Him. But we're not afraid of Him. Why? Because He, by His grace, has declared us 
righteous. He gives us something that we could never receive, never, never, never earn, that we could never get ourselves. He gives us His righteousness. Now this doctrine of faith, uh, justification by faith alone was the source of probably the greatest conflict in the church that there ever was. So it's what spurred the Protestant Reformation in 1531. 1517, excuse me, August 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nails his 95 Thesis to the door of the uh, castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, because he can no longer teach, he can no longer express what the Bible clearly contradicts. He, he, can't, he can't deny what Scripture teaches. And, and, and the teachings of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church, are in, are in contradiction to what he reads in Scripture, namely that we are saved by faith alone. When the Roman Catholic Church parted from the Greek New Testament, and I know about enough church history to be dangerous and to get it wrong, and for one of you to email me and say, ah, it was this date and not this date. So I'm going to refrain from dates. But in the fourth century... When St. Jerome, as he's come to be called, when Jerome was, was called by Pope Damasus I to translate the Gospels and the Psalms from the Greek into Latin, he did so. And, and, and he has this Bible that is then presented, and the church, the Roman Catholic Church, begins to take this Latin Vulgate, the common Bible, and becomes the church of the, uh, becomes the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church until and, and, and after the time of Martin Luther. So for about 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 years, the Roman Catholic Church was, was taking the, the Latin Vulgate, and from that they developed their doctrine of salvation, specifically in Romans chapter 3, verse 28 we see the Latin word eustificare. Eustificare. That's Latin. It means to make righteous. Ficare means to make. It's a process. So, so there's this process of being made righteous. And so the Roman Catholic Church doctrine of justification is this idea that we are in a process of being made acceptable to God. Now, we are in a process called sanctification. But this process of sanctification is built on the declaration of justification. So the Greek word that was translated eustificare in Latin is, let's see here, Dikaiusune, all right? Dikaiusune, to declare righteous. That word means to be in a state of being that you ought to be. So when God justifies you as righteous, when he declares you righteous, you are righteous. That's the state of your being. That's your identity. That's who you are, you are righteous in identity. And do you see the difference 
how the Catholic Church, how Martin Luther parted ways. He wanted to reform. He just wanted to say, let's have a conversation about this. And he parted ways, and now you can see how, from the Catholic tradition, if you die without having been made righteous, then you go to purgatory, where you are then made righteous. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That, that, was, that was a misunderstanding of the Latin. Let's go back to the original Greek. And the term is dikaiosune, to be declared righteous. In a moment of time, brothers and sisters, by faith, you are declared righteous. We don't, have to be, we don't have to wait to be made righteous before we're acceptable to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God, the moment that we have faith, declares us righteous. This is a permanent and binding legal transfer that takes place. Christ's righteousness transferred to us. This is why Martin Luther coined the slogan, Simul Justus et Peccator. If I ever get a tattoo, it's going to be this. Because one, Latin is awesome. Simul usus et peccator. Simultaneously, you see that word, simul, you get that. Simultaneously, justus, justice, just, righteous. Simultaneously, righteous and sinner. Simultaneously, righteous and Sinner. A Christian is someone who is simultaneously a sinner, who was saved out of his sin. He's in sin. She's in sin. And, and, and God declares him or her righteous, right there on the spot. The moment that they have faith, righteous. Is the sinner perfect then at that point? Indeed. In thought, in word, hardly. Process of sanctification. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. We're saved by faith alone. That was the conviction of Martin Luther as he translated Romans 3.28. And he controversially added sola fide, alone. He added alone to this. One is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. He added that word, but he understood, the, the, he understood Paul's intent. He, un, he rightly understood the context. Paul was saying, you're saved by faith alone. That is sola fide. Now, this concept was not original to Luther. We can actually go back to Origen, who, who goes back before the, the Latin Vulgate, before Jerome, before the church developed its doctrine of justification from the Latin, we go back to Origen, who died in 253, and he commented on Romans 3.28. He says, the justification of faith alone suffices. Now listen to me. Listen to me. So that one who only believes is justified even if he has not accomplished a single work. I think about the thief on the cross, Exhibit A. The man did zero work to atone for his own sin. And Jesus said, today 
you will be with me in paradise. Why? Faith. He believed who Jesus was, who said he was, what he said he would do. He believed. Those who are in Christ, I'm sorry, let me go back up to verse 28 here. Verse 4, uh, I'm sorry, a 4 at the beginning of verse 28 ties this back to verse 27. You see how it begins in, in 28, it says 4. Whenever we see 4, we have to ask ourselves what it's there for. Why is it there? 4, at the beginning of verse 28, ties back to verse 27. It shows us that the reason that our boasting is excluded is that you and I are declared righteous by faith, not by anything that we do. The reason that you and I don't stand on center court, the reason that there will be no, there will be no self-crowning moments in heaven. You're not going to go down an assembly line when you, when you get to heaven and pick up your crown and put it on your, your own head. No. Because you did nothing. You did nothing to achieve that. I know that bothers you every time. <laughs> You did nothing to get it. Not, the, not that part, the mic popping. The mic popping part bothers you every time. There's not going to be any self-crowning, right? Because we do nothing for our salvation. This is a call to humility. For those of you who are in Christ, this is a call to remember that your righteousness was in no way associated with your life choices. Some of you do not believe me. <laughs> I know it. I have felt this. Your salvation, your righteousness, has zero to do with the decisions you've made in your life. None. You are the unwitting undeserving recipient of grace. For those of you that are not in Christ, it's a call to humility for you to recognize that you are who the, the Bible says you are. You are exactly as Paul describes in chapter 1 through 3. Depraved, wicked, lost. All of your great intentions amount to nothing. You have nothing to offer Jesus but an empty hand and a humble heart. And I invite you to do that today. Verse 29, Paul switches it up a bit. And you know what? I'm not going to force 25 minutes into 13 minutes. So this is a beauty of, of just preaching verse by verse. I can just say, you know what? I'm going to put my transcript down and talk from the heart. Okay, we'll come back next week to the rest of verse 29. How's that sound? Okay. So I was thinking about holiness, and I was thinking about this, um, this concept that we are saved by faith alone, that there's nothing that, that you or I can do to earn our salvation. And I thought, what, what should that inspire in us? And I thought it should inspire a few things. Number one, it should inspire humility. Right? So, so in church life, what I have observed is it is easy for us to forget 
that we were saved by faith alone. And we have functional, works-based, righteous people. And in fact, I've got a quote. For, let's go to Galatians. I'll use that this morning. Go to Galatians chapter 3. He wrote to the Galatians. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Galatians are born-again Christians. They've been saved by the Holy Spirit. They've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Then look, he says, are you so foolish? That's an interesting turn of phrase that the apostle says to the church. Why would he do that? He says, having begun by the Spirit, he acknowledges these are born-again Christians Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so all the way back in the first century, Christians thought, I am saved by grace through faith. This is not of myself. I'm not going to boast in it. I am just a recipient of God's grace. They receive that and then proceed through life acting as if I can maintain my own righteousness and that it's incumbent upon me to ensure that God stays happy. That somehow by observing laws, and this is going to be different from you know a moral standard of living. Again, this is part of the next half of my sermon. There's a difference between love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and walking through life thinking that somehow, some way, though you began by the Spirit, you are being perfected by the flesh. So, Spirit-filled, born-again Christians leading Functional, works-based, righteous lives is nothing new. You, you follow with me? Christians who were made alive by the Holy Spirit, given the righteousness of Christ, and then stepping out as if they somehow contribute to their righteousness is nothing new. It exists in this church. It exists in every church. So the first thing that I hope this does is, one, release you from that. You did nothing to get it. And listen to me. There's nothing you can do to lose it. I, I don't think you believe me on that either. There's, surely there's something that a born-again believer could do that would cause God to say, you know what? I made a mistake with you. I'm going to reverse course. I'm going to declare you guilty, though I have already declared you not guilty. No. And in my benediction, I'll read you the proof. So one, I want to, I, I want to invite you to slough off this idea that there is any responsibility on your part to maintain your right standing with God. 
That is a permanent and legal binding. Are there things that we can do that cause God's discipline and frustrations in life? You bet. But there is nothing, listen to me, that will ever cause God to not love you in Christ. The question for you is, are you in Christ? Outside of Christ, all that God has for you is wrath and judgment. But he gives you grace. He says, come. I'll give you the righteousness of my son if you just believe. But those who believe, all he has for you is love. There's nothing you can do to lose that. Full stop. Amen. Someone gets it. So one, release from moralism, legalism, works-based righteousness, functional. I've got to maintain my own righteousness. The second is, and Beth, we're not on the screens anymore. Yeah, I'm off, I'm off script now. The second, and this is what I wrestled with, and I, I wasn't sure how it was going to come out. It felt forced at the end of, of, the, of the sermon, but it feels natural. Now, the second piece, once you have fully apprehended the weight of the gospel, once you have fully come to appreciate this great salvation that you've been given, should that not motivate you to take that to other people? Should that not inspire you to take the greatest news of all time and seek opportunities? Shouldn't that, and not again, not a works-based thing, like shame on you that you don't. But the question is, why don't you? Do you fully understand the weight of the gospel? Have you fully come to understand what Jesus has given to you? You know, my son, I know what's important to him. You know why I know what's important to him? Because I listen to him. Because I have a relationship with him. I spend time with him. And he tells me the things that are important to him. And the things that are important to my son are important to me. Why? Because I love my son. Now, I want to ask you this question. Do you think that the mission of Jesus is important to Jesus? Why? Give me proof of that. What? He loves us. The cross, he lived it, right? He steps out of heaven into flesh, dies on a cross. I only came to glorify the Father. The Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. Focus. Is the mission of Jesus important to Jesus? Undeniably. So much so that he dies for it. And then he calls his followers, watch this, take up your cross and follow me. 
If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says everything should be in your open hand. Your wife, your kids, your home, your parents, your life should be in an open palm, and you should be willing to lose it all for my sake. That's how, much, that's how important the mission of Jesus is to Jesus. What would it say about my relationship with Hudson if I did not know what was important to him? Or even worse, I did not care what was important to him. What would that say here? It would certainly say that there's a strain, there's a lack of intimacy, there's a lack of closeness, there's a lack of appreciation for the relationship. So my question for you this morning, for those that are in Christ, who have been saved by faith alone and given, in the words of some of our church fathers, early church fathers, an alien righteousness, meaning outside of yourself, you could never make this up in your own, in your own life. You've been given someone else's righteousness, namely Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in Christ, my question to you is, how central is the mission of Jesus in your life? Do you know what matters to Jesus? Do you care about what matters to Jesus? Wildwood, this is a call for us this morning to submit. We're going to sing a song that says, My heart is yours. I would rather you not sing it than to sing it and not mean it. My heart is yours. There's an, there's an interlude or a bridge or some musical term that I don't know that goes back to all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. So this invitation this morning, I'm going to ask the elders to come back. The worship team is going to come back. I'm going to ask the elders to come and stand. I'm just going to open up the altar. I'm just going to say, you know what, come and lay, come and kneel, come and pray. Two things. Number one, give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're hearing me this morning and you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, let today be the last day of that pre-justification life. And the first day of having been declared righteous in him. And the second, and this applies to the majority of us in the room. Surrender your life to Jesus. His mission in the world is the most important thing. Everything ought to revolve around his mission in the world. The way that we parent, the way that we love our spouses, the way that we pursue or not pursue our relationships, the way that we work, where we work, when we work. All of this should revolve around the mission of Jesus Christ because it matters enough to him to go to the cross for your sake. And then he invites you to take up yours. Surrender your life to Jesus.
And I promise you that you're never going to be more attuned to the Holy Spirit than you are this moment. The moment you walk out these doors, if you choose to say, I'm not going to worry about what other people think, I'm not going to move, I'm not going to come, I'm not going to kneel, I'm not going to ask for someone to pray for me, I'm not going to surrender my life, and you walk out these doors, I can promise you Satan will immediately go to work distracting you. And you'll once again console yourself that you're a pretty move. Respond this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would set people free in Christ. People that do not have a relationship with you, I pray that today they would. I pray that today would be a day of faith. People who have a relationship with you, I pray that today would be a day of complete surrender. Have your way in our church. God, would you set us ablaze for your glory? Give us a zeal that burns within us to, to weep for lost people all around us and all around the world. Make your priority our priority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.